Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thornton, Special Projects Editor and FT Advisor. This week, we are examining the outlook for emerging markets as interest rates rise globally, and we dare hope the worst of the pandemic is receding into the past. Emerging markets often appeal to investors due to the high growth characteristics, something which may be particularly relevant as global economies reopen. But with the potentially higher reward come higher risks. In a changing world, how can clients understand and price those risks in relation to emerging markets and to the rest of the investment universe? Joining me today are Fahad Hassan, Chief Investment Officer at Albemarle Street, Gustavo Medeiros, Head of Research at Ashmore, and Zechrid Osmani, who runs the Martin Curry Global Long-Term Unconstrained Equity Fund. Thank you all for joining me today. Fahad, we'll, we'll start with you for the, for the first question. A period of above-trend economic growth would typically be expected to be positive for the case for emerging market equities. But given the unusual nature of the world right now, and indeed for, for much of the past um, uh, decade, can investors be confident it will be the same this time? Um, uh, th- thank, you, thank you for having me on uh, the programme, by the way, David. And um, just in, in, in terms of uh, emerging markets, uh, the, the, the key criteria that uh, investors should be concerned about is the starting point of valuations. And um, uh, historically, emerging markets uh, present opportunities because they do become oversold. And I do believe, given what we've seen over the last sort of 10 years, emerging markets have derated significantly uh, versus the more developed markets. Uh, And uh, hypothetically, they should have done better last year than they actually did. I think that the opportunity hasn't actually gone away. I think uh, with an acceleration in uh, EM growth, uh, possibly arriving in 2022 rather than 2021, I think uh, given where valuations are, uh, EM uh, can uh, deliver higher returns uh, than uh, some of the developed market peers uh, that seem to have benefited uh, from this flight to quality uh, that the pandemic created. Thank you. Uh, Gustavo, as, as an emerging markets um, specialist, do you look at the, the world right now and, and the macro picture and think perhaps different parts of emerging markets are, are becoming more interesting as we open up, whether that's geographical or whether that's sectoral or, or anything else? We've had, for example, perhaps uh, the rise of uh, remote working. Does that have an impact? That's just one example off the top of my head. But how do you see this changing world impacting on your universe? Um, just to complement some of the excellent points that Fahad mentioned, I agree that valuations is a key point to monitor. But your question is was pertaining specifically why uh, es- essentially emerging markets did not perform relatively well in an environment where global growth was actually above trend and surprising to the upside. In 2021, it was a very peculiar year indeed. It was a year when commodity prices was going higher, when global growth was actually accelerating quite quickly and above trend. Emerging market growth was outperforming the developed world growth. Typically in this environment, EM is doing okay. Why didn't do fine? I'd say that in 2021, we went through what I call a crunch time in macroeconomic uh, uh, aspects in emerging markets. We had a combination of the fear of the Fed hike kicking in as the Fed moved from an ultra-dovish stance 
and the Fed hikes were priced in to start in 2023, the earliest uh, at the beginning of 2021, and moved into, you know, they're now pricing four hikes already in 2022, which is more or less what the Fed speakers are now uh, guiding the market towards, alongside with a very strong slowdown in Chinese uh, economic growth and macroeconomic conditions, right? So we had twin housing and energy crisis in China at the same time that uh, a number of regulatory actions uh, implemented on the, on the technology sector uh, led to a massive derating on the valuation of Chinese stocks, despite the fact that, you know, Chinese growth has been, and Asia growth in general, have been quite strong. And on top of that, you had the idiosyncratic risks. Most of the concerns have been related in 2021 to um, whether or not, not uh, the uh, large EM countries that have implemented large uh, Countercyclical policies, uh, countercyclical fiscal stimulus to get out of that COVID crisis would be able to consolidate their fiscal deficits. Um, and I think ex post, the result is encouraging. 2021 was a year of intense fiscal deficit consolidation, but there are still a number of concerns in specific countries um, and, you know, uh, alongside of political concerns that have uh, kept some of the asset prices on the downside. But I think all that makes it up for a very strong environment for 2022. Um, we're going to talk a little bit um, uh, uh, of Fed hikes in the future, I believe. But uh, but I think that the the you know it's we basically postponed the starting of the good momentum of emerging market assets and the performance so far year to date has been quite encouraging actually. Uh, EM stocks are up, the S&P 500 is down, the dollar is down, emerging market emerging market currencies are up. So, um, uh, again, it could be a little bit of a reflection of how the year is going to unfold. Thank you, uh, Gustavo. Uh, as a global equity investor, you can, by definition, go anywhere in the world. Is it as simple for you as saying go where the growth might be strongest in the next part of the, the cycle, and that could be emerging markets? Or does the uneven and unpredictable nature of the recovery make it more complicated this time than it might have been in the past? Hi, David. Hi, everyone. And thank you for having us on your program. Uh, good question, uh, David. Uh, the way we would uh, emphasize uh, uh, the answer to your question is uh, it's not just about the growth and the attraction of growth. It's about valuation and whether valuations do capture that growth or do give us the opportunity to uh, capture returns for investors. So when we look at the top down, um, geographically, we are actually finding that uh, there are more opportunities in markets outside the US. Uh, Europe uh, remains attractive and Asia and emerging markets uh, are indeed very attractive. So on the valuation front, uh, capturing some of the gross profiles that uh, the previous two uh, participants mentioned is indeed uh, uh, highlighting some of the attraction of that region, uh, the region of uh, emerging markets stroke Asia. The way we would uh, specifically look at it, though, is on a case-by-case -case basis uh, because there are some aspects to consider, such as geopolitical risks, uh, notably in places like Russia uh, versus uh, Ukraine and uh, uh, the Middle East, uh, where there's also some potential geopolitical risks. And then what we've seen with uh, China specifically since last year is a shift in uh, regulatory uh, backdrop with uh, tightening uh, initiatives on some of the big tech, which have weighed on some of these companies quite heavily in terms of share price move, uh, and also 
the uh, Chinese uh, president Xi Jinping's uh, drive towards common prosperity also effectively imposing an element of uh, the surtax on some of the big uh, uh, companies in China. So it's important, as always, to take it on a case-by-case basis rather than just a blanket statement. But we certainly do find some opportunities in the region. Thank you. And Zared, we'll, we'll uh, stay with you for the next question, if we might. As a global equity manager, what relevance does monetary policy have to your thinking? Do you tend to give it extra weight then when looking at potential emerging market investments where, where they might be more, more sensitive to um, monetary global monetary policy risk? Yeah, good question again, David. So the way we would answer that question is uh, firstly to state that we are long-term investors and therefore when we look at uh, structural growth opportunities, we'd look at that on a 10-year to 20-years uh, time frame. And um, there are some very attractive uh, thematic opportunities that we believe uh, will come through no matter what happens to the bond yields environment in the near term. However, then when we then move to the uh, bond yields environment, there's a couple of aspects to mention. Firstly, the economic cycle. We believe that we are moving from a recovery phase of the economic cycle, which is where we were last year, into an expansionary phase of the economic cycle. As this happens, typically monetary policies move from being accommodative, which they were last year, into normalizing, which is what is now happening, and the market is having to digest those uh, monetary policy expectations shifting. And the debate is really around whether uh, monetary policies are normalizing or tightening. And that can create a whole bull bear debate about uh, the economic momentum, the potential fragility of that economic recovery or not. Our view is that monetary policies are normalizing rather than tightening uh, overly. Uh, You can see that uh, from uh, real rates remaining negative. uh, And uh, we think the economic uh, momentum is uh, remaining very well oriented. Both of these things lead us to remain positive on equity markets as a whole. Um, But when you have that shift in monetary policies, you tend to have increased market volatility and increased volatility between the different styles, notably quality growth versus value. And whilst monetary policy expectations adjust and stabilize, you have that uh, propensity to rotate from quality growth towards value. For us, this is something that's uh, shorter term. Uh, The final point we would mention uh, to complement the answer to your question, David, is the importance of being disciplined as investors in terms of valuation framework. To give you an idea and an illustration, in our valuation framework, we use a 4% discount rate compared to 10-year bond yields currently around 1.75%. And the importance of this is that we use a discount rate that's significantly higher than the current rates uh, in the market. And therefore, the rising trends in those bond yields that we've seen in the past couple of quarters do not affect our fair value calculations. And that's really important. Um, What we believe in this rising bond yields environment is the the stocks that will be most um, at risk in the quality growth basket are companies that are loss-making and, and where the path to profitability is quite extended. 
because they typically are much more sensitive to yields. So uh, to wrap up uh, the answer to your question, yes, some investors do find that bond yield moves do impact valuations near term. Our view as long-term investors and given our valuation framework is that it doesn't change the way we see some of those uh, attractive pockets of value. And we actually think that some uh, sharp moves in share prices at the moment are opening up some very interesting opportunities in the quality growth space. Thank you, Zahrid. Um, Gustavo, you, you kind of touched on this in your, your earlier answer. Do, do you feel that the any potential sort of negative or downside from glo- tighter global monetary policy is to an extent already priced in to uh, emerging market assets? So we've had the bottom and now we're springing up. Is that, is that, is that your, your view? Yes. So it's interesting to the extent that um, most people associate uh, the Fed hiking cycle uh, with a negative headwind for emerging markets. But as a matter of fact, when you look into the data over the last two, uh, 20 years, when the Fed was hiking policy rates, emerging markets were actually performing quite well. They were outperforming during the hiking cycle between 2002 and 2006, and then uh, performed in line with the MSCI world, despite the fact that commodity prices were actually quite flattish and global growth was struggling as, uh, you know, uh, global trade as a percentage of the GDP was starting to slow down in the second Fed hiking cycle that we've seen over the last 20 years between 2015 and 2018. Uh, and obviously, EM uh, stocks also outperform the Fed is easing monetary policy. Uh, EM stocks underperform in two scenarios uh, uh, that we've seen in the data. One is when there is a global recession, similar to the COVID shock that we've seen, or the 2008 global financial crisis. And on the second is when the market is starting to fear that the Fed is going to hike policy rates and starts to reprice uh, the, the expectation for policy rates increase in the short term. Because that's an environment where there is quite a lot of um, uh, you know, portfolio adjustment, etc. And uh, But following the first rate hike, emerging market actually typically does quite well. So I think that we're precisely, well, I, I don't think that. That's what actually the policymakers are telling us. The Fed is saying that they want to hike policy rates for the first time between March and May. So from an emerging market investor perspective, the earlier they do it, the better. But I think the markets already understood these dynamics, um, given that, you know, how the cycle, how the previous cycles have played out quite you know, nicely, and given the valuation gap that has opened up between emerging markets and the developed world, which can also be explained in terms of like, you know, factors, factor analysis, like value lagging growth uh, quite significantly and overdue to for a payback, um, um, already started kind of like working uh, before, even before the Fed hiked policy rates, i.e. so far year to date, as I mentioned, EM stocks is already outperforming US stocks. Now, I have... I'm not, I know you, we're not U.S. stock investors, but one thing that we monitor is across border capital flows. And a good part of the um, very strong performance of U.S. stocks over the last 10 years was basically led by pro-cyclical um, um, monetary and fiscal policies. That really started when Trump did its first tax cut uh uh, in 2017, um, which was, you know, during the middle of an expansion, you were adding a fiscal policy. And then obviously when Biden got elected, he also did his own version of pro-cyclical by pouring money or by giving money to the population straight to their pockets, right? So after 
10 years or after five years of pro-cyclical policy and 10 years of outperformance of U.S. assets vis-a-vis the rest of the world, in particular emerging markets, U.S. assets are extremely expensive. And the only factor that actually explains that is, you know, the continuous inflow uh, to the U.S. exceptionalism story that is purely a capital flow story as everywhere. And whereas I agree that we have to keep an eye on the long term, those cycles, i.e. of U.S. outperformance and underperformance, tends to last for about 10 years. So you can actually lose um, your job or your career or, you know, uh, um, uh, you can make quite a lot of damage if some of these structural capital flows got missed. So, again, I think that the the framework is uh, the macro framework um, in terms of valuations, in terms of global capital flows, and in terms of the Fed cycle, is quite ripe for a, for a sharp reversal of these of this trend that we've seen over the last ten years. Um, and and you wouldn't be surprising at all if by the end of the year EM stocks are outperforming U.S. stocks by a very large magnitude. Or I'm pretty confident that within the next three to five years we're going to see EM stocks outperform U.S. stocks by a relatively large magnitude. Okay, thank you, Gustavo. Um, Fahad, to what extent, as an asset allocator, do you uh, do you think about um, monetary policy, and is it more relevant for when you're when you're looking at EMs than, than perhaps when you're looking at developed markets? Um, so, so as an asset allocator, uh, monetary policy plays a central role. Our, we've, uh, our process at Albemarle specifically is driven to a large extent by the signals from the uh, from bond yields and inflation, uh, and therefore, when monetary policy uh, starts to uh, have an impact on bond yields, uh, that is front and center of how we think about the world and how we run money. So, uh, you know, uh, the, the the key point from an EM standpoint uh, for us is how uh, the dollar behaves relative to EM currencies uh, because um, uh, from from, from uh, I know bond investors can access EM through hard uh, uh, hard bonds basically but if, when you're buying EM uh, from an equity standpoint you're exposed to the currency uh, as 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 well as you know this risk premium that we talk about about multiples and so on, you're also exposed to the currency and and these currencies uh, have uh, been in a bear market versus uh, the dollar for quite some time. Uh, and I know uh, that at the start of the pandemic, when you know the Fed was loosening and throwing money at the system, that the dollar did start to weaken. But for the last six months, dollar strength uh, has caused. A lot of pain uh, if you've been on the wrong side of owning Turkish equities, for example, or uh, owning equities in various other regions. And uh, I think one of the key signals that we are looking for is some semblance of dollar weakness uh, for EM assets to do significantly better uh, than developed market equities. Uh, because in the absence of that, uh, I think uh, you just have this constant headwind where uh, EM uh, uh, central bankers have to keep up with the Fed and do more. And what that does is it essentially causes domestic recessions as they try and sort of maintain uh, purchasing power of their currencies. So I think uh, that as long as EM, uh, you know, central bankers are are taking the right steps uh, and uh, they do not, you know, in the process cause a recession, i.e. the Fed, you know, does two hikes, three hikes and then stops, 
then then it's a game on for EM definitely. Uh, the issue is is if obviously the Fed either takes too long to call an end to this cycle of raising rates or that it goes too far itself. And uh, that's where the risk lies uh, with, with, with regards to EM because EM central bankers are led by the Fed uh, because of this uh, uh, tie to the currency um, and how that feeds into domestic inflation for them. So I think that if, uh, if you know, to Gustavo's point, if, if the Fed uh, go two or three times this year, maybe four, and then call an end to that, I think that's the bull case uh, that we're looking out for uh, from an EM standpoint. Thank you. Um, this question, chaps, I guess is very, very straightforward for all, all three of you, and pro- probably something close to a yes or no answer. Um, is the term emerging markets even valid anymore? Should they be grouped together as a homogenous uh, group? Or, you know, it used to be everyone thought emerging markets was just about commodities, and it's clearly not now. Gustavo, we'll, we'll start with you um, first for that one, because you haven't got to go first yet. Sure. Um, my favorite definition of emerging markets is um, the countries that you have risks and these risks are priced. In the developed world, you have risks, but the risks are not priced. So <laughs> uh, that, that's, that, that's a bit of a joke. But if you want to get actually a proper quantitative definition from emerging markets, you're going to have to go to find places where the GDP per capita or income is still not at high levels. It's relatively stuck in between low levels and and high levels, so it's the middle-income countries, and countries that actually have their debt capital markets and equity capital markets not significantly developed. So when you get countries that have middle level of income and middle level of development on their capital markets, this is, in my personal view, the definition of emerging markets. And to the extent that you still have quite a lot of room to develop, um, you know, you can have these things moving at different pace. It's very hard for your GDP per capita to increase without an increase on the breadth and depth of the capital markets, because typically those are extreme; those are very connected in the capitalist system. Uh, but you can have um, a capital market, an extremely developed capital market, uh, in a country that is still stuck in middle income. Brazil is one of the examples uh, that that comes to mind. But you have, you know, at least ten to fifteen countries that are have similar level of development on their capital markets than the developed world in terms of breadth, depth, et cetera, liquidity, but it's still stuck in the middle income. So therefore, I think it's still a valid term. It's still a, a sound way of allocating capital to the extent that you have typically a, a, an excessive risk premium, both in equity and debt capital markets, vis-a-vis the fundamentals of the companies and the fundamental of the countries. Uh, and therefore, and that, and that is explained precisely by this level on development that typically is also um, reflected on the political environment, uh, which which becomes one of the risk factors to monitor. Um, And in terms of like how, is it better to allocate in regional terms? I mean, obviously Asia has been the engine of global GDP growth and the engine of of emerging markets as a whole in terms of uh, uh, um, uh, development, right? Uh, China, um, uh, Indonesia, India, Vietnam, um, 
you know, the whole of Southeast Asia, basically, we've seen a huge amount of development over the last 20 years, 30 years, and they have quite a lot of room for uh, both on the demographic perspective, but also in, in, in most economies or in a number of economies there, but also from, a, you know, from a capital allocation perspective uh, due to structural reforms and improvements, et cetera. That is still feeding, still taking place into these economies. So it's a place that you can say has higher quality growth. But it, you cannot overlook, oversee, you know, a lot of the opportunities in emerging markets are often in countries where there's a huge amount of risk premium priced in, be political or geopolitical risk premium, and investors kind of gave up on that case. And, and then suddenly something changes, and that leads to a massive uh, re-rating on risk. Uh, one example uh, in the job... Oh, no, uh, Gustavo, that's fine. Thank you. I, I, I don't think we have... We have time for that, but thank you very much. And Fahad, um, as an asset allocator, is emerging markets a bucket that you that you have, or do you break it down regionally or countryly or just globally? We don't, we we don't actually. We we um uh, uh, find that given how much Asia constitutes of of the overall EM index and how big a share it now uh, is of that index, uh, that there's like a 90-odd percent, 92% sort of correlation between uh, Asia x Japan and EM. Uh, we actually uh, took that step to remove EM as a, an asset class last year. And uh, we feel that unless the opportunity set is really, really compelling, i.e. if we have a very strong opinion about... Um, uh, you know, LATAM, for example, or Russia, uh, that we don't feel uh, that it uh, stands uh, to be a separate asset class. I think, uh, you know, to Gustavo's point, basically, Asia has driven such a big part of the growth. Uh, but uh, more to the point, Asia is waiting uh, after China's A-share inclusion has become such a big part of the EM index that the two of essentially become the same thing so uh, we don't actually break it out we believe that asia x japan is a better risk adjusted return uh because the returns are like you know 99 the same but on a risk basis em tends to do worse uh during uh periods of weakness in the global economy uh because of those currency uh, issues that i uh, discussed earlier or because individual countries can have uh you know big big uh problems uh, because of political issues, for example, so we don't we don't think that you should necessarily be breaking it out, and we don't do that from an asset allocation point of view. Thank you, um, Sarit. How 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 do you think about? It? I know you're a, a global equity manager, so it's it's a slightly different um, perspective for you. But but do do you view equities that you look at that happen to be listed in emerging markets as a homogenous group? No, they're far from being homogenous, David. And, um, you know, even staying top down, you've got some uh, parts of uh, so-called emerging markets that are very reliant on uh, uh, basic materials and energy prices. Uh, others are uh, more heterogeneous. And some countries like China are actually uh, well on the way to uh, not only emerging, but really moving towards a more uh, developed market type of structure, at least in terms of the shape of their economies, with services being a bigger uh, part of the economy than manufacturing. So um, you have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, you have to look at uh, the political and the regulatory risks, which typically, arguably, might be higher than uh, most of developed markets. And you have to assess whether that's factored into 
uh, the valuation levels and how that can impact uh, company business models, cash flow generation, uh, and returns ultimately, as we alluded earlier with the Chinese shift in regulatory stance, putting more pressure uh, both on revenues and on uh, returns of some of the big China tech companies. Uh, okay, since, that's uh, great, Jared. Thank you um, for that. You actually mentioned um, China there at the end of your answer, and that really leads into the to the next question. And maybe we'll start first with Fahad for this one. Are we now at the point, Fahad, where events in China are more consequential uh, for the outlook for emerging market equities or assets than our events in the US? Um, uh, it, that, that's a difficult one to answer. It's, it's, it, you know, it, it depends on the uh, magnitude. So clearly, uh, the market was not prepared uh, for the regulatory sort of pressure that Xi Jinping and his government created last year. And um, uh, g- g- given that the market wasn't prepared and it was so reliant on those large cap tech stocks, I think that's why the impact was so significant. Uh, the concentration of market cap in those large cap uh, tech names, I think, was what created the issues uh, la- last year. I think if you, if, if you were to think about uh, the long term, I think um, the US probably is more significant because of its role in driving overall global uh, GDP and overall uh, monetary policy looseness. And, and, and we've discussed how uh, the uh, sort of currency impact uh, can uh, cause um, a lot of, uh, you know, EM countries to tighten their policy in reaction to Fed monetary policy. Uh, and just for that reason, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say that the US remains the most uh, important driver of both global and EM growth. Uh, but uh, China, uh, you know, more more through sort of export channels is obviously very important for oil exporters, for commodity exporters, but not so much for the overall growth picture, uh, which is driven uh, by uh, US monetary policy. Thank you. Uh, Gustavo, I'm really keen to, to get your, your thoughts on this. Are we, are we now at the point where what happens in Beijing resonates around the world, around the emerging market world, than what happens in Washington. I think we're getting there. I think you know China is already a much larger trade counterpart vis-a-vis the rest of the world and the U.S. Uh, China already has controls, as Fahad mentioned, uh, the vast majority of purchase of in, in commodity terms, and China is the center of the supply chain. Uh, of the Asian supply chain, which is today the most important supply chain in the world. So the only factor that is not letting uh, China be to be the most important economy in the world today, it's its consumer market, which is still uh, vi- relatively small vis-a-vis the size of its population, vis-a-vis the size of its economy overall. But I would say that, yes, I think that, you know, like or if you look at the contribution to global GDP growth over the last 20 years, China has already been playing the most important role. It's already been the energy of global growth, and that won't change. Uh, what we're going to see here, which I think is important to point out, is that GDP growth in China will decline quite significantly in absolute terms or in, 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 uh, in real terms. Uh, we're not going to see China growing close to 10% anymore, but something along the lines of 5% over the next couple of years and uh, potentially below that as as the the economic transition away from uh, investment-led and export-led growth 
towards more endogenous lat growth uh, takes place and less leverage or leverage gets taken out of the system. That is extremely important. And that is what, uh, the you know, Beijing and the leadership calls quality growth, right? Having said that, uh, China grew so much over the last 20 years that, you know, less than 5% growth is going to have a larger contribution on global growth than more than 10% growth 10 years ago. So I think that, yes, China remains the engine of economic growth of the world. Uh, the U.S. dollar, I agree with uh, still is the most important uh, uh, currency system to monitor because it is the reserve currency of the world. Therefore, you know, it's your discount factor of choice. And, and the dollar trends plays a massive role in global locations, as, as I've alluded to and Fahad mentioned as well. Sure, thank you. Um, Zarid, uh, as a global equity guy, have events in China started to play a bigger role in your thinking? And is that even more so the case with regard to emerging market assets? The short answer is yes, David. Uh, China is the second largest economy in the world. On a purchasing power parity, it's actually the largest. It contributes to half of the global GDP growth. So economic momentum in China affects the global economic cycle, and therefore it's very important to be focused on uh, both the prospects and developments uh, around China on all levels. And then on the geopolitical side, it's uh, important to also highlight the potential risks around China versus the rest of the world, as we call it in our outlook. And here you're looking at potential uh, uh, more aggressive uh, territorial ambitions that the Chinese leadership might have uh, once uh, Xi Jinping is uh, elected for a third term. And so it will be very important to keep a close eye on those developments because those can spill over into uh, the uh, global equity risk premium. Thank you for that, uh, Zahrid. And thank you uh, to Fahad Hassan, Chief Investment Officer at Albermarle Street, Gustavo Medeiros, Head of Research at Ashmore, and to Zahrid Osmani, who runs the Martin Curry Global Long-Term Unconstrained Equity Fund. And thank you all for joining me today. Do remember to tune in for the next edition of the FT Advice Podcast. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.